you and I were born into a story. The Bible is God's story of the world, and we are part of that story that God is telling. You see, the Bible itself is a beautiful tapestry that has many different themes that each, each of these themes serves like a thread that, that ties the whole Bible together into one stunning story. And it's the story that includes you and me. We are caught up into this story. There are lots of different themes that we could look at that help define our lives. Themes in the Bible such as promise and sacrifice and adoption and even kingdom. We'll look at that next week. These are themes that, that God has revealed in his word that define our very existence. Last week, we talked about one of these themes called the mission of God. And we saw in the Bible how beginning to end, we have a God who is on mission and calls us to be on mission. Two weeks ago, we looked at a theme of how God has this vision, this big picture, this theme of the people of God, how God has been actively working from the very beginning to bring together a people for his glory. And that defines our very lives. See, this story that we have been born into contains a villain. Like all epics, God's story also has a villain. There is a dark power that is at work in this world. And and the evil is not too difficult to see. There are school shootings. There is cancer. There's divorce. There's human trafficking. There's drug abuse, broken homes, anxiety, depression, disappointment. I think you get the picture. That we live in a world where there's a very real enemy and a dark power that is at work. And we have been born into this world, as the Bible describes them, the great dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. But like all adventure stories, God's also has a hero, where there is this fearless warrior who faces this great dragon and he goes and he defeats him and then he falls into the arms of the ones that he loves. And there's a reason why we love to watch adventure stories or movies and read adventure books because we, we have something in our hearts that just gets stirred when we see a hero that is facing unsurmountable evil. And it just seems impossible, but against all odds, this hero faces the enemy and then he slays the dragon. And he then enjoys the rest of his life with his people. And, and the reason why we love those stories is because those are just mere shadows. Shadows of the ultimate real one. Let me ask you a question. Are you just kind of wandering through life? Do you find yourself a bit, a bit lost maybe? Have you ever walked into, I don't know, like 
a big theme park or like SeaWorld or maybe like a really big mall, not the one in Temple, um, like a legit really big mall, and, and you're lost, and, and, and then you look for one of those signs, and then there's something in the middle, and it's a bright red star, and it says what? Yes, you are here. And you're like, okay, but then you try to figure out, okay, so I'm here, so is it like upside down? And like, but, but that's helpful because when you see that red star and it says, you are here, now you can kind of find your bearings. And now you can find where you are in, in this whole big place that you're in, and now you know where to go, and, and you can find where you're trying to get. And not just wander around lost and think of yourself as as needing to find that red star that says you are here in life rather than just kind of wandering somewhat lost in life where maybe you wake up one day you look in the mirror and then you just take a deep breath and say where has my life gone What have I actually done? What have I accomplished with this thing called my life that has any kind of eternal significance other than just surviving and just living day by day? Because let me tell you, God did not make us to just wander through and just survive. He did not. He made us for a purpose. He made you and me to fulfill our destiny, to impact eternity. So we we were made for the story of God. So we need to find our place in God's story. Find that red star that says you are here and find your place in the story that God is telling of the world and realize that this story when we find our place in it, it gives us eternal value and purpose and direction. And that we are designed to live in this great adventure that God is telling. To go ahead and pursue that destiny and find the role that God has made uniquely for you to fulfill in the story that he is telling. And so today we're looking at a theme that runs through the Bible, and it's an unstoppable Savior. And this is life-defining and life-changing. Let me give you the primary truth for this morning as we look at the Bible together. Let me give you God's plan. His, His plan is to defeat the enemy and rescue his people through his Messiah. That's what we're looking at here. This is the story of the Bible is God defeating the enemy and rescuing his people through his Messiah. And you see that from Genesis all the way through Revelation. It's a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, beginning in the beginning. You see God's purpose for our lives is intimacy with him. We're made to walk with him, to hear his voice, and to enjoy him. And so you see in the Garden of Eden... Shalom, which is peace with God and peace with each other. So you have basically paradise right here on earth. That's what you see. Our purpose is to enjoy God, and out of this enjoyment of him, this is glorifying to him. This is the essence of worship. 
So what you see is worshiping God by enjoying his presence and serving him. So you see worship and service and enjoyment. You see that in the Garden of Eden. But we know it doesn't stay that way for long because chapter 3, you have Satan. The serpent comes and he tempts them in three ways. And if you're taking notes, you want to write these down because this is going to help us as we have temptations every single day because Satan has not changed his playbook. He continues to tempt us today the exact way he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. So number one, what does he do? He questions the authority of God's word. Now, there's a difference with asking questions about God's word. We should, we need to ask questions to learn, to ask who, what, when, where, why. We have to ask those questions. But there's a difference when you ask a question versus questioning authority. And so parents, y'all get this. Whenever your, your precious little child asks you the question, why? Sometimes that's a good question, right? Like, why? Why is this? Why is the sky blue? Ask your mom. I don't. I don't know that one. Or put it in the Google. Um, so, but that's a good question. But sometimes when they say why, it's a, it's challenging your authority. And so, moms, today on Mother's Day, blessings on moms, mothers. It is a display of the glory of God to be a mother. It is glorifying to God. God is revealed in, in, in terms of being a father, of male terms. God is spirit, but he's revealed in male terms, and he's a father. And yet, all of the mother characteristics, so those of nurturing and caring and teaching, all of these beautiful mother characteristics, God has all of those traits. He loves and nurtures and cares for us. And so being a mother is a display of his glory. And so congratulations and blessings on our moms here this morning. It's a high calling, and there's great virtue in being a mother. When, you're, when your precious little treasure says, why? Because you said it's time for bed. Or you, or you say, no more ice cream. Why? Well, okay, all of a sudden, they're not actually asking you a question. They're not inquiring as to why you've made this decree, they're just challenging your authority. And the answer should be go to your room or time out or whatever you do for discipline in your home because that's what's necessary because there's a difference with asking questions to learn but questioning authority. And so what you have here is Satan who is questioning the authority of God's word. Did God really say? So that's what he does. He's going to get you to question the authority of God's word. Number two, he's going to replace God's word with his word. Sin's going to replace God's word with his own word. And so God is the ultimate preacher. God preaches. He preaches his word. And then Satan is also a preacher. And he preaches his own word by replacing the word of God. So what you see in the garden here is Satan replacing God's word with his. Essentially, he's lying. He will lie to you. He will tell you, no, you will not surely die when you disobey God. He just flat out lie. He's replacing God's word. And what he does by doing this is he's getting us to think that God is holding out on you. That, that God has something that he doesn't want you to have, that he is keeping blessings from you and that God cannot be trusted. He replaces God's word with his own. 
and he gets you to doubt his goodness. Number three, he will appeal to your own desires. And so Eve saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye and good for food. Satan says, here, take. It's not that bad. No one's going to know. You got this. You can control this. You can stop whenever you want. You got this. It's fine. Enjoy. This is what Satan does. He gets us to, first of all, to question God's authority. He replaces God's word. And then he appeals to our own desires. And he's been doing this from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve. In the beginning, he's been attacking, opposing, and oppressing the people of God. This is what Satan is about. He's about opposition and destruction and addiction. So what, was, what happens? Well, we don't worship God anymore. We don't, we don't enjoy God. We don't serve God. We want to serve ourselves. We get spiritually lazy, and we're not following him the way we were designed. So there were some consequences, some very serious consequences to disobeying God. And so they, they were expelled, exiled from the garden, so thrown out of paradise, and they were condemned And they're declared guilty and fallen and cursed. And so now you have the Satan's realm is defined by death and destruction and disease and all of the things that we know is wrong with this world all started right there in the Garden of Eden because of the serpent's temptation and human rebellion. But we need to read a verse in Genesis chapter 3 to see exactly this unstoppable Savior and how God promised immediately after humans sinned. Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God promises that a son, a seed, and so that a future descendant, so born of a woman, a future human being will come and it says that he will crush the head of the serpent that he will defeat satan and it says that satan is going to bruise his heel so yes he's going to suffer so this promise when this messiah will suffer but he is going to crush the head of the serpent so you see here mercy god did not destroy rebels the way he could have or from a law standpoint should have But God is merciful. And so he doesn't destroy rebels. He had a plan for life. That one day he's going to bring his Messiah to defeat the enemy and bring us back into the garden, back into his presence. And Genesis 3 sets into motion this adventure, this story of conflict between Satan and the people of God. And Satan has been doing everything that he can in his power to stop the coming of the Savior. He was there in the garden. He heard God say that one day, one of Eve's descendants is going to crush his head and defeat him. So Satan was paying attention. He was dialed in. He wasn't checked out watching SportsCenter. He knew what he was doing. He was listening. He said, okay, someone is coming someday and is going to defeat me. 
And so Satan has been actively engaged from the very beginning in stopping the coming of the Messiah and destroying him so that Satan can continue his reign. So Satan has been terrorizing the people of God and trying to prevent the coming of Messiah. But remember God's plan that is unstoppable. He'll defeat the enemy, rescue his people through his promised Messiah. And so if you keep following the story in Genesis 12 and 17, a few chapters later, we see that this promised Savior who will come to lead us back into the garden, back into God's presence and have victory, that this promised Savior will come through the lineage of Abraham. And so God is revealing, he's progressively revealing more of his plan. And he says that the coming Messiah, the Savior, will come through Abraham. And you see commentary about that in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Under the Spirit's inspiration, the Apostle Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham, beginning in Genesis 12 and 17, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so we see here this theme that there was one who would come through Abraham who would defeat the enemy. And you get to the end of Genesis, the same opening book of the Bible, and Satan is trying to kill the people of God and prevent the coming of Jesus when there is a famine where the 70 people, the descendants of Abraham, are all going to die. And if they do, there's no Jesus. There's no salvation. Satan would have won. So what did God do? Because he's unstoppable. He sent one of the sons named Joseph to Egypt. And if you know the story, it was through horrifying circumstances. And yet that was God's plan. And this should encourage us that God is unstoppable no matter our circumstances. God took Joseph put him in Egypt, and made him a ruler in Egypt. So then all of the family of God, who was going to bring the promises, left the famine in the promised land and moved to Egypt, where they can live safely and not die in the famine, so that God's plan could continue and it would not end with victory for the serpent. And so the family of God is surviving satanic attack, living in Egypt. What happens 400 years later? They have grown to be a mighty nation. God's call to be fruitful and multiply has happened. And now you have millions of people, estimated about 2 million Israelites, now living in Egypt. And so what happens? The serpent has had enough and he gets more aggressive and he now works in the, in the heart of the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, and they do what with the baby boys? They throw them into the Nile, trying to kill the people of God, prevent multiplication, so that way they would eventually die off and there'd be no Messiah. And yet, God spared one little boy named Moses floating in an ark. And saves him, who then delivers the people of God from slavery. And they go into the wilderness on their, on their way to 
the promised land. God saves his people and and Satan is unable to accomplish his purpose in defeating God and his Messiah. So what happens? They're in the wilderness and there's an evil king and he hires a rent a prophet named Balaam. And, and he hires him. And if you're curious, it's in Numbers 22 through 24. And, and the idea is to put an evil curse upon God's people and weaken them so he can then go wipe them out. This is Satan at work using dark arts. I mean, he hired an evil, dark prophet to now curse God's people. And four times he's trying to curse God's people. And every single time, you know what comes out from this prophet? Blessings. He can't even curse God's people. Satan is trying his best. And God is unstoppable. And and on his final prophecy, you know what Balaam, this pagan prophet, you know what he promises? He says that one day Messiah will come and he will crush the head of God's enemies. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 3. God's plan is not stoppable. Satan is trying, but he is failing. What happens years later? You have other oppressors. The Philistines are threatening to destroy and wipe out God's people. But God brings up a shepherd boy named David who defeats the giant and who secures the borders, defeats the enemy, and brings our people into their golden age. Again, God being victorious over the enemy. But after him and his son Solomon dies, the kingdom tears into two. Northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and the northern ten tribes, the the northern kingdom of Israel was completely wiped out. I mean, I'm talking obliterated by by the kingdom of Assyria. This world power in 722 BC came in and destroyed them and forced them to intermarry and essentially nullified, dissolved ten tribes of Israel, known as the ten lost tribes. Satan was successful in wiping out 10 of the 12 tribes. And then King Sennacherib was around Jerusalem, had a siege. And if, and if the walls had fallen, if the king of Assyria had breached the walls, destroyed Jerusalem, and killed them off, it would have been all 12 tribes would have been lost which means God's promises would have failed. Satan would have won. And yet Jerusalem did not fall. Did not fall. Survived. And remember, what tribe was Jesus promised to come from? Judah. Which is the same tribe that was in Jerusalem. God keeping his promises that are unstoppable. Now, 100 plus years later, there was a new power, Babylon, that did destroy Jerusalem and did level the temple and burned everything down. But the Babylonians did not force intermarriage and did not dissolve. They moved the kingdom of Judah, so the tribe of Judah moved them to modern-day Iraq. And let them just live there as their own people, maintaining their same ethnicity and faith, and did not destroy them. 
And when a new power, Persia, came in and sort of the Babylonians, the Persians actually paid to relocate them back to the promised land and finance rebuilding the temple. You tell me God is not unstoppable? God knows exactly what he is doing. Do you see this thing of kingdoms come and kingdoms go, and yet God's kingdom is unstoppable? This promised Savior is unstoppable. And when they were living back in their land under Persian rule, read the story of Esther. It's an amazing story. If you read that, you will see how God's plans are like hanging on the edge of a knife or just hanging by a thin thread. Because all of God's people were about to be completely exterminated. Satan was so close during the Persian rule to winning, to defeating God's people and preventing Messiah from coming. Read it. It was ever so close. And you know how God saved his people and stopped the serpent? With the beauty contest. A beautiful woman named Esther. God used her. But beyond being very attractive, she had a heart filled with faith. A woman of God. God used her to rescue all the Jews in existence, living in the Persian kingdom. Unbelievable. You talk about boring Oh my goodness, there is nothing boring in the Bible. It's not boring, it's exhilarating. It's this incredible story. And then, so they, they survive because God is unstoppable. And then you get to the New Testament. Jesus is born, he is a baby. And now there is a new evil king named Herod who sends his troops to go to Bethlehem and to do what? To kill all the baby boys. Do you know, do you see this theme? How, how the serpent, at the core, what he loves to do is kill babies. That's what he does. And he tried to kill the infant savior. But he's unstoppable. And so God, through a vision, through a dream from Joseph, they get out and they don't die. Survive. The Messiah is not killed by the enemy. He grows up, and now the Savior is face to face with his enemy. They've been battling for all of these years, and now Jesus in the flesh is in the wilderness for 40 days fasting, and you have our, our hero, champion from heaven, our fearless warrior is face to face with the serpent. But see, here's the difference, is the first Adam did it in the luxury of the Garden of Eden. This new Adam is battling the serpent in the wilderness with no food or water for 40 days. And the exact same temptations that Satan used are the exact same temptations that he used again with Jesus. He tempts Jesus by questioning the authority of God's word, replacing God's word with his, and then appealing to Jesus' desires and need for food. 
the exact same three temptations that he uses on you and me every single day he he used because that's all he's got that's his whole playbook and he used it against jesus but jesus resisted defeated the enemy did not give in trusted god and then soon after that jesus was hanging on the cross And he was dying. And all of hell celebrated. Satan threw a party saying, finally, I finally got him. I've been trying all these years. I've been so close, so close. And he always gets away from me. And this time I got him. I killed him. He's on the cross and he's buried. And Satan thought that he won the victory. Little did he know, little did he know that the cross was the exact means to have his head crushed. We have victory because of the cross. If you read Colossians 2, 14 and 15, it says that Jesus on the cross, that God nailed our record of debt that stands against us with legal demands. He nailed it to the cross. And then he says that that work on the cross has disarmed Satan. And it has put him to open shame. And that he triumphed over the serpent with the cross. And so now we have a defeated enemy. And we have a victorious, conquering king. Unstoppable has always been and always will be unstoppable. The grave could not stop him. This changes everything in our lives. This is meant to stir in us affections for Jesus like nothing else can. I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 5. This is the end of the story. This is where our lives are headed for those of us love and trust Jesus. This is the end where the serpent will finally have his head crushed. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. You hear that? He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Praise God. Praise God. Our hope is alive because our God is alive and our Savior is unstoppable. This scroll describes the culmination of God's plan for all of human history to defeat the enemy and rescue his people through his Messiah. And this document was sealed like this roll had seven wax seals on it where the king had poured wax and then stuck his, his ring on it, his signet ring. And so then if anyone would break that seal, they would be in big trouble unless you were the king, unless you were worthy, unless you alone, the king, were worthy to break the seal of the king. And so what you see here is Jesus is worthy to open this Perfect scroll. So the seven seals describes perfection. And so this perfect plan for human history, Jesus alone is worthy to open and to accomplish it because he died on the cross and defeated the enemy. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the son of David and he has conquered. So he is worthy. He alone is worthy. And he has seven horns and seven eyes, and that sounds weird. But it's not. It's symbolic language. Seven seals describes a perfect scroll, perfect plan. Seven horns describes perfect power. And seven eyes means that he can see, so he has perfect vision and perfect wisdom is what that refers to. This is just Beautiful, poetic language describing who Jesus is, that he is wise and powerful and the conquering king. And then it says seven spirits. Again, seven mean perfection. So this refers to the Holy Spirit who was sent into the world to accomplish his purpose. So don't, don't let the poetic language intimidate you. This is just describing his power and wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And now he is unstoppable. This is the word ransom. So we are a blood-bought people. And God has promised that one day he will defeat the enemy through Jesus. So his purpose for you is unstoppable. 
You know, I, I look around, and I'm not talking so much about Renewal Church. We're all a four weeks old, and we're just figuring this thing out together. It's a brand new church. But I've been around church for a very long time. And as I look at a lot of people, I, I notice a lot of people just kind of come on a Sunday, show up, leave, and they're just unchanged. And I don't see any fire in them, like no passion for Jesus. And they're just going through the motions, and, and I wonder, well, why? Why are so many people, what, what do they live like that? And you know what I think? And this one of the problems is, I think we're bored. I think a lot of people are just bored. They're bored with God. They're bored with the Bible. They're bored with church. They're, they're just bored. And, and we have taken this incredible story, this adventure story, this soul-satisfying story that we're a part of. And instead of finding our role in this story, we're just oblivious and we're bored. And we don't even realize that there's a real enemy that is wreaking havoc in our lives and we think it's all just physical, and there's a spiritual dimension. He's real, and the enemy attacks, and and we're deceived in thinking that it's it's just oh it's just what I ate for lunch. No, it's not. No, it's not. And we've just settled for this honor, this brand of Christianity that says just come and sit. And let us entertain you. And make sure you come back next week because when all the seats will be filled, just come and sit and be in awe of what we're doing on the stage. And let us just, let us just thrill you with worship gatherings. But make sure you come back. And it's like, wait a second. Since, since when is God's call come and sit? It's not. It's not the call to come and sit is to go and make disciples. It is to go and live your role in this incredible adventure story and not just be bored. I think what happens to us is that we think, oh, Christianity is my fire insurance. Feeling me? Or, oh, I've got, I've got my ticket to heaven, so I'm good. I'm good to go. No, it is so much more than that. Salvation is not about just being saved from hell. Salvation is not just a ticket to heaven. Salvation is about restoration. Your heart, restoration of your purpose. It is about living in this adventure that God has called you to, fulfilling your role in his plan. Which is why you see the people there, these heavenly beings, crying out, Worshiping, because that is the goal. See, I think what's happened to us is we don't realize that we're called to be warriors. You see, we serve a God who is a warrior, who has been fighting. And we, we now we're born into this story and we find ourselves in this incredible story. But we're called to take up our shield and wield our sword and go 
battle the enemy and not just sit thinking that we're in some sort of a country club. When we're not, we're in a battlefield. You were born into a story. Have you found your place in God's story? We're in a battle against an enemy, a real one. And we're called to battle for the hearts of men and women, for the hearts of people. We must have the courage to fight, to rise up and to fight. But when we rise up and fight every single day, we have to know this, that we're fighting from a position of victory. We're fighting because the battle has already been won. The war is already assured. All we do is we then do our role in this story and we fight for other people. You know, there are such few things that I can think of that bring the kind of joy and excitement as it does when you rescue another soul. When you impact another human being. When was the last time that you saw God at work through you where another human was transformed, released from slavery, was truly impacted, and their life was completely changed because of you? This is the call. There is nothing more satisfying than seeing God at work through you. See what God can do through you if you will just pick up your sword and your shield, and get into the battle. But so here's the key as we, as we close and as we respond to our God. Know that as we're fighting, God fights for you. He's fighting for you. Heaven is fighting for you.